the difficult to read story of a parent with dementia, of a mother with dementia, and then it comes out the mother-daughter relationship that was not always a very easy one, and she explores this in her book. So, which makes us think, was, is there an autobiography to this? So, um, it seems that there was, from what I could find in reading interviews with the author, but she began with this first book, her first novel, which was based on her own family history. Her, grand, uh, her grandfather, right, not her father, her grandfather was arrested by the FBI as a sus suspected spy for Japan the day after Pearl Harbor was bombed. And her mother, uncle, and grandmother spent three years in an internment camp. So you know, in the, I mean, you know that the history that Japanese Americans and Canadians as well, because we have several books in the Canadian like novels and autobiographies were written about the Japanese. The same thing happened; they were taken during the Second World War and interned in camps as possible, you know, fifth columnists, enemy aliens, even though they were Canadian. Um, so she so she wrote about that. That was the basis for her first novel. And it, this book did very well. It was translated into several languages, sold a number of copies, was called by the New York Times a resonant and beautifully nuanced achievement, um, a gem of a book, and one of the most vivid history lessons you'll ever learn. So it seems that she, like in her this book, in, in the first book and in the second novel, she had an idea of what she wanted to say about a certain historical period, which was based on her own family history. It's always like Japanese Americans. In this book, it's not so much historical fiction. It seems to be probably, or at least I don't know, I'm just you know, speculating here, the most close to home and the most to do with her own personal life. Because when, when I read the interview with her, when I listened to a bit of an interview on NPR, she tells the interviewer that, well, her mother suffered from dementia, from the same dementia, from the same disease as the character does, as Alice, as Alice does in the novel. And she, Julie Osuka, says, yeah, you know, it was a very hard thing because my mother started to, her character, her personality started to change, but we didn't realize it until so much later. And that's similar to what happens in the book. So it seems like with this book, at the age of 60, she has written about herself this time instead of about a particular historical period in um, relatively modern American Japanese history. The second novel, so the first novel was about the internment of these Americans of, of Japanese origin in, in the United States during the Second World War, based on her family story. Her second novel was called The Buddha in the Attic. Anybody? No. Um, I, I'm pretty sure we did that a number of years ago. So that was 2011. So we did a number of years ago that we, that we would have talked about it, which is why I don't remember all the titles. And it was about a group of young Japanese, they were called picture brides, who sailed to America in the early 1900s to become the wives of men they had never met and only knew by their photographs, which I guess happened in other cultures as well. I mean, as Julio Suka said in, in, in an interview, you know, that was pretty common in those days. Marriages were arranged, even in Japan, and pictures were sent of the prospective bride and groom to each other, And but in this case, it was the ticket, literally a ticket, out of Japan, out of poverty, for these young Japanese women at the turn of the 20th century, like this took place in the early 1900s. And these young women had, who were living very difficult lives in Japan and wanted to get out, the only way that they could leave, could get to America, is if they would get themselves an American husband. So there were, and there were these Japanese American men, and again, this is a bit, I guess, of, of American history, that Japanese men at the time were not allowed to marry white women in America. So they had to marry fellow, I don't know what the, the, the law was, it had to be fellow Asians or it had to be also Japanese, but in any case, they couldn't marry Caucasian American women. And so, and they wanted wives. So they, they, there were people who did this, intermediaries, matchmakers, and these girls came, these girls and young women came aboard ships having never met the husbands, only knowing them from a picture. And, and that book I, I remember I read, and I, I don't know if any, if 
that you said you didn't read it, but it's, it's a very interesting description because these young girls come off the ship and they have the picture of the man who they're supposed to marry and who they see standing in front of them does not really bear a resemblance to, you know, older, not as nice looking, turns out that even though the description they had money or a position or a job, there was not so much of that and their lives turned out to be for the large part, very, very difficult. Um, so that was her, that was the topic of her second novel, The Buddha in the Attic. She has also been published, she's written short stories, short fiction, and she's been published in a number of different magazines, including Granta and Harper's, and been read aloud on different radio stations, including the BBC's Radio 4 book at bedtime. I don't know if anybody ever listens to that, but that's a great thing to listen to um, if you like read, listening to radio stories before bedtime. She lives in New York City, which again, you know, the, the daughter in this book, her mother says to her, you grew up and you moved far, far away from me and you never came home to visit me was one of the things she always said. So I don't know, but the daughter Julia Osuka lives in New York City where she, there's no mention of her private life at all, except for one, one little piece in an interview where she says she was sitting in a cafe one day. Oh, and it also says here she lives in New York City where she writes every afternoon in her neighborhood cafe. Um, during COVID, she said her cafe never closed, but she didn't go in it when things were very bad. Now she's back to writing in this cafe. But she said that, and it was the only reference to a relationship that I could find, um, that she said that she was sitting in her regular cafe one afternoon and some guy sitting at a nearby table said to her, looked over and said, oh, what are you reading? And she said, now that's, you know, probably about the most common pickup line among literary folk, but she said it worked and we were together for the next two years. But that's the only, and it seems like, and then it ended no more mention of a personal life and again if you read the book you'll remember that the character at the end when it's the daughter's voice writing saying that my mother always said and the, the daughter in the book has had has a, a marriage that ended in divorce and her mother says to her you know if you get married again you better bring him to let me meet him before you marry him but she so i don't know if this is this part is also a bit autobiographical but that's the reference i could find so her new novel. How many of you read the book? I just want to. Oh, so not so many. Hmm. Okay. You couldn't get it? Oh. Oh, too bad. Okay. Well, again, I kind of, I guess, spoiler alerts or not. I mean, it's it's not that this is such a plot driven book. It's the writing style and it's the characterization and the description. So, um, the new novel, The Swimmers, which is very aptly titled. It starts off in a swimming pool. And I don't know if any of you are swimmers or were swimmers, but if you've been regular swimmers, and I for like 35, 40 years was a regular swimmer several times a week, there is a whole thing. And I guess it's going to the gym or anything that you do on a regular basis. There's a whole culture that develops around it. So swimming pool has its own particular culture. And if you're a swimmer, you would appreciate this book all the more because, I mean, she takes it to a bit, I guess, of an extreme. She's a writer. She distills it to, to a certain, you know, essence that the, this swimming pool life, but there is a thing about going swimming. It's different than going to the gym. It's different than running. It's, there's things that go along with going to a swimming pool. So how does she begin the book? And the book is divided. It's very interesting. This, a few readers were a little bit, um, some liked it, some didn't like it. They felt it's like, there are kind of two sections to the book. The first section takes place in the swimming pool and it's divided into two parts. First, you have the swimming pool itself and then you have, uh, well, the first part is, is called the, let me say how the title's the first part, but it's the swimmers, the underground pool. And the second, um, section of the first part of the book is called the crack because the crack appears in the swimming pool. So how does she begin the and then the second half of the book? Sorry, okay, so that's a, and the second half of the book, which almost somebody said to me, but it's like two different books, and I really didn't understand how it was linked together. I mean, there there are links. There are there clearly links, and if you go back, and yes, there are. But yeah, the second part 
um, is, is the story of Alice, who's one of the swimmers, one of the regulars in the swimming pool, doing her laps every more every day and whenever she swims. Um, and she is, when we first, when we meet her, in the beginning stages of dementia, or at least definitely has dementia already, but swimming is one thing that she's still doing. And the second half of the book describes her decline, the memory loss increases, and she eventually has to be placed in a home. And at the end of the book, the last section is told from the point of view of her daughter. But, and the voices are very interesting. And this is, this is typical of Julio Tsuka's writing because when the Emperor was divine was also written in that same style. The beginning, the first part of the book is this we, and it's kind of, you have to get used to it, the beginning, because it's almost like a Greek chorus. Um, it, it's a, it, right? It's an interesting, it's like strange. Like, like strange, yeah. That's so, it, it, and and maybe repetitive, and, and like it's, it's odd. But then if you go back and read it a second time, it's um, it's good. It's, it's it's better the second time. So how does she begin it? So the first chapter is called the underground pool. The pool is located deep underground in a large cavernous chamber, many feet beneath the streets of our town. Some of us come here, and so here you have this us voice. Some of us come here because we were injured and need to heal. We suffer from bad backs, fallen arches, shattered dreams, broken hearts, anxiety, melancholia anhedonia, the usual above-ground afflictions. Others of us are employed at the college nearby and prefer to take our lunch breaks down below, in the waters, far away from the harsh glares of our colleagues and screens. Some of us come here to escape, if only for an hour, our disappointing marriages on land. Many of us live in the neighborhood and love to swim. One of us, Alice, so she says this right at the beginning, one of us, Alice, a retired lab technician now in the early stages of dementia, comes here because she always has. And even though she may not remember the combination to her locker or where she put her towel, the moment she slips into the water, she knows what to do. Her stroke is long and fluid, her kick is strong, her mind clear. Up there, she says, I'm just another little old lady. But down here at the pool, I'm myself. So that's the opening paragraph. So you've got this pool, and then you've got, and, and the story continues, where it says, this is at the pool. And when we go down to the pool, we manage to leave our troubles on land behind, achieve this, this world of the pool, this subterranean cavernous pool underground is a totally different world for the swimmers to their world up above. And so in the beginning section, there's, all, there's a lot of this in our real lives up above versus down at the pool. And, um, and for example, she says, there are rules at the pool and we like this about the pool. The rules at the pool, although unspoken, are adhered to by all. We are our own best enforcers, she says in brackets. No running, no shouting, no children allowed. Circle swimming only, direction counterclockwise, always keeping to the right of the painted black line. All band-aids must be removed. No one who has not taken the compulsory two-minute shower, hot water, soap, in the locker room may enter the pool. No one who has an unexplained rash or open wound may enter the pool. No one who is not a member of the pool may enter the pool. Guests are permitted no more than one member, one per member at a time, but for a nominal daily fee. Bikinis are permitted, but not encouraged. Bathing caps are required. Cell phones are forbidden. Proper pool etiquette must be observed at all times. If you cannot keep up the pace, you must stop at the end of your lane to let the swimmer behind you pass. If you want to pass someone from behind, you must tap them once on the foot to warm them. If you accidentally bump into another swimmer, you must check to make sure they are all right. Be nice to Alice. Obey the lifeguard at all times. Turn your head at regular intervals and remember, of course, to breathe. And that's it. So she, she, she has this. And so the first section, this is the voice. It's a, it's a we, and it's a descriptive, but it's definitely this kind of chorus. And there are a lot of lists. Do you notice that when you read it? There's this and this and this, and there's a continual list. So when she was asked by an, by an interviewer, there was a long and very interesting interview um, by Terry Gross for Fresh Air. If anybody listened to the program on NPR, 
Um, there, anyway, there was this long interview with Julia Zuka by Terry Gross, and she says to her, you know, you're, uh, please, Julia, so welcome, it's good to have you here, and please read, and she asks her to read this opening paragraph, which I just read to you, and then she says to her, you know, the beginning of your book has this inventory style of writing, which either you find it annoying, which I, you know, you could either find it annoying or you could find it interesting. But she says, but the interviewer asks the author, you know, you, your lists and your paragraph and your lists and paragraph, and it's like details that keep building and building into a larger picture. Is, was that your purpose? And the author answers, you know, I don't mean, I don't aim to be a list maker, but I think that my way of apprehending the world is actually through detail, through an accretion of detail. That's how I put things together to get the big picture. I think that's just what my brain naturally wants to do. I'm not a plot-driven writer, she says, which is true, as you, those few of you who read the book, it's not a plot-driven, right? Descriptive, I mean, she has what she wants to say. The big, I guess, part of the plot is that this crack appears in the pool, at least that's in the first section that this crack appears, but she says, um, my background is in the arts, and that's where she relates it. She says, so I'm interested in looking at things as if for the first time and not knowing what the details are, which, one are which ones of the details are necessarily important and which are not, but I just like to see everything and then I'll figure it out. So, so that's how she describes this because it's lists, it's lists and lists and lists and it's this choral voice talking. And, but as I said, at the beginning, and it really is right on the first page, that we are introduced to Alice, and we are told that she is in the beginning stages of dementia. And of that first section, there's the we. Alice is the only one, really, who has a name. The rest of them, like, sometimes she'll refer to him as so-and-so, the breaststroke guy, or so-and-so, or -so, you know, does the backstroke. But that's what, and it's true if you've been in a pool and you don't really know other people so well you know that that's the the person who's always in that lane and that's their routine and everybody has their routine and it's kind of crazy how you get so fixated and she says this and we have our little um obsessions all of us like there's the guy who starts every swim by i don't know tapping on the clock as he's going into the pool or the other one has to i don't know do something with her bathing cap each time and this one has to swim exactly 68 laps and the other one has to swim 100 laps and the other one does has a photographic memory and does the new york times crossword puzzle in his head so however long it takes them to do the new york times crossword puzzle that's how long he swims for so and and it's all quirky and it all sounds a bit cuckoo, but that's part of the world of swimming pool. As well as she says, and I'm thinking it's true, you know, when you go swimming, like in the lane, you go counterclockwise, you stay to the right of the lane, you do this turn. I don't think like we knew this about the tap the person on, like if you're going to pass them, but anyways, but slow, medium, and fast. That's how the world is divided into the slow lane, the medium lane, and the fast lane, because that's how pools are divided. So you have all this, this which again, maybe because I was a swimmer for so many years, this personal, personally to me, very fascinating description, but general, but but pretty general. Like it's the we, the we, the we, we do this, we do that. Sometimes the voice is a little bit, what's the word for it, twee, like a little bit blip, um, which kind of counter counteracts with the seriousness of what the subject is going to be, but it's funny. The first part is really funny. The pool part but she's just funny she has a really good sense of humor and she and so you know she describes and she realizes like we're all a little kooky us down here in the swimming pool and then you and and again i you know i guess i could relate personally then you meet somebody up above ground fully dressed and you look at them and say oh you know like because you're so used to seeing them in a bathing suit with a bathing cap and goggles and then you see them dressed in regular clothes and you barely recognize them as the same person so she describes this how it's two different worlds and so this is going along so the first part of the book is all this you know describing the different people the slow lane and the medium lane and the fast stroke and our elegant breaststroker marv and our our so-and-so uh, um swimmer this person but then it happens. There is the crack. And the crack happens on page 35 of the book. And how does she start the second section? This is how she, she begins it. 
At first, it is barely visible, a faint dark line just south of the drain in the deep end of lane four. It flits briefly into view as you swim over it, and then once it has passed out of your field of vision is instantly forgotten, like a dream that vanishes upon waking. If you blink or are angling your head upward toward the light as you are surfacing for air or are simply admiring the superior physique of the swimmer in the next lane, you will miss it. Many of us, older and no longer eagle-eyed, blind without our glasses, do not see the crack at all. Or if we do, we mistake it for something else, a piece of string, a length of wire, a scratch on the outer lens of our goggles. One of us, as she does almost everything else, mistakes it for her own self. I thought I had a floater in my eye, she says. And for those of us slower swimmers who spend most of our time, most of our lives, it often seems, drifting and bobbing in the shallow end of the pool, the crack is nothing more than a rumor. News from a distant lane to which we pay no mind. So that's the opening of the second chapter. This little insignificant, innocent enough, you know, could be nothing crack. But, and this is how she say, builds up tension, um, that what is this crack? It's, it's a crack in their world. And however, the crack doesn't go away. And for several days, she, as she describes it, this is still in the voice of the we. We look at the crack warily. We wonder, is it getting any bigger? Is it just imagination? Maybe we shouldn't, and then some of them think it's a, a like a, an evil, a, evil omen to swim over the crack so they do anything to swim around it others are curious and they however there are some of us who are unable to suppress our alarm what if the crack is a symptom of some deeply rooted systemic decay or a geological an anomaly or a manifestation of a larger underground fault line this is california the, the i mean it sounds like the book is set in california or in a larger underground fault line that has been growing stealthily beneath us for years others scoff the crack they say is purely cosmetic a rust stain left behind by a wayward bobby pin that fell out of alice's hair so again we have alice she's mentioned every once in a while in the way the other characters are not because then the rest of the book is going to be about her she doesn't always remember to put on her swim cap. Or maybe, as someone says, it's fake, or a work of art, or both. Anyway, they go on and on, then they finally, the crack is not going away. So experts eventually are called in. First the pool management, then they get experts. We are looking into it, the aquatics director tells us. But he tells them, the crack is not a leak, that's for sure. The water pressure remains steady, because you know these are important things when you swim temperature and the water pressure. This is all taken very seriously by swimmers in a swimming pool. Um, crack is, is most likely, and now this is something interesting here, she writes, the crack is most likely a transient phenomenon brought about by recent warming trends in the weather. And by the end of the summer, pool officials predict it will have played itself out. Now somebody said to her in one of the interviews, they said, you wrote this book during COVID. It came out in 2022, um, or at least you know, part of it, if not all of it, but part of it. And people were reading it into it, COVID-related things. So they had this, that when there's this crack in the swimming pool, and when, which is those, like, nothing to do with COVID, you would think, except it's just that the way she writes here, it's most likely a transient phenomenon. It will just, you know, it'll go away in no time. Do you remember way back in March of 2020, February 2020 maybe, but March, and when things closed down on that Friday, the middle of March, it was only going to be for two weeks. And in fact, I remember this clearly because that's the last time I swam in the pool. And then they closed the pool. And they said only for a couple of weeks, right? And here we are, like, you know, almost three years later, and okay, we've gone through a lot. But so they said to her, were you writing about COVID when you were writing about this? Was this crack in the pool supposed to be, you know, symbolic of how little we knew? We thought this was like, or we didn't know. Some were anxious, some were not anxious. It's going to go away. This is not going to be until, um, and she said, I don't, I didn't set out to do that. But then COVID came along and I, and as my book was taking form, I thought, oh, yeah, you know, so I could see how you how you could read it like that. Anyway, they go on debating this is the crack, what's going to happen to the crack. Um, 
and, and it goes on and on, and then they bring in the experts, and the experts don't have anything to say, and then they tell them that, and they ask for suggestions from the swimmers, what should we do, everybody has their ideas, they do studies, they are heartened by the results of the most recent study, which indicate that cracks such as ours, tentative, barely there, scarcely visible to the naked eye, in a word, shy. They tend to be indolent rather than aggressive in nature and spread at a nearly glacial pace. Again, if you want to make COVID analogies, it's just interesting to, you know, what she's talking about here. And then, and then, and then one by one, the swimmers start to get nervous about this and new cracks start to appear. And this one crack morphs into many other cracks and the pool management, the powers that be don't know what to do. So they try and figure out what's going on but they really don't know. And eventually they have to tell the swimmers that the pool is going to close. And this is like terrible news for the swimmers because this is a major part of their lives. And they tell them that by such and such a date, that is going to be the end of swimming. And it's so interesting, she writes at the end of this section, she says here, so once we all got the news that at the end of August, the pool was going to be closed, and it said closed, like there was no date, no opening date, some of the longtime swimmers thought, okay, that's it. I always wondered what it would take to get me out of the swimming pool, to get me out of this routine, and I guess it's this crack in the pool and the knowing that at the end of August, our swimming pool is going to close that is going to do it. And so she says, she writes at the end of this section about the pool, until the very last week, a few of us continued to hold out hope that we might somehow be safe. Surely, says morning regular Hugh, as she gives, she gives, occasionally gives names of the swimmers, there must be somebody up there who can intervene on our behalf. This can't be happening because this isn't the sort of thing that usually happens to other pools. Weren't we, I mean, weren't we supposed to be special, different, immune, exempt, or, or like, or is this just our fate? Like what, what is going on here? One of the swimmers, empty nester Yolanda, pushes her goggles up aviator style onto her forehead and says to all of us, everything is loss. And so, they all and they all have to start to think about it as the summer drifts ever closer to its inevitable end we grow more and more resigned to our fate it's all over people linger for an extra moment or two before getting out of the pool even though they know full well that they are breaking the rules of the pool which are no idling post swim in the lanes that was pre the fact that this pool is going to close and and it goes and it and one by one the days pass by and they get to the end and at the very end and this is like one of the poignant scenes at the end of the first part of the book the last swimmer there's alice and alice is swimming and they're extra nice everybody's extra nice even the normally grumpy lifeguards are extra nice to alice because they know that she is in she has dementia and that she sometimes forgets how many laps she's done or it's time to go out and so when they all, everybody gets out of the pool, the lifeguard blows the whistle on that very last day, the very last swim, and they all get out of the pool, except for Alice. When she doesn't come out, the lifeguard says, leave her, let her have one more lap. And when she swum her last lap, she takes a long hot shower in the locker room and changes back into her clothes and then climbs up the stairs and emerges blinking and stunned into the bright blazing world above. And that's the end of the subterranean pool section. Then the next section of the book is Alice. It's going to be Alice because there's no more, there's one or two brief references to the pool in the, in the next part of the book, but basically it's Alice's story. What does she call? So the first section is this was the underground pool, then there was the crack, and now we're on to the kind of the second part of the book. It just called, it has a Latin, she gives the author gives it a Latin name, Diem Deum Perditi, which in in Latin means the day was, I lost the day. I think that's how it goes. Um, because what's that we are, we're told or often written, car, carpe deum, right? Yeah. Which is seize the day. So I think here she wants to say, 
the day is lost. Like that's what that's what she entitles it. And how does she begin it? This is Alice. This is from this is now it's from the wee voice of the pool to Alice. She remembers her name. She remembers the name of the president. She remembers the name of the president's dog. She remembers what town she lives in and on which street and in which house, the one with the big olive tree where the road takes the turn. She remembers what year it is. She remembers the season. She remembers the day on which you were born. And so the you, who is the you? It seems like the you is the writer of the book. She remembers the daughter who was born before you. She had your father's nose. That was the first thing I noticed about her, but she does not remember that daughter's name. She remembers the name of the man she did not marry, Frank, and she keeps his letters in a drawer by her bed. She remembers that you once had a husband, but she refuses to remember your ex-husband's name. That man, she calls him. She does not remember how she got the bruises on her arm or going for a walk with you earlier this morning. She does not remember bending over and plucking a flower from the neighbor's front yard and slipping it into her hair. She does not remember what she ate for dinner last night or when she last took her medicine. She does not remember to drink enough water. She does not remember to comb her hair. And then the next section is very sad because it's Alice and what she remembers and what she does not remember. And so she's the dementia, she's, is getting worse her memory is getting worse but in this section she remembers she's remembering so she's we get a description of alice's life and um and then and so that's that section and eventually as alice's memory gets worse she has to her the, the father alice's husband and the the narrator of the story the daughter have to make a difficult decision but they put their, the mother, Alice, has to be put into a home because it's too difficult to take care of her at home uh, by the husband. The daughter doesn't live there. She's, the, she's an author who lives far away, who does not have a close relationship with her mother. And the father, very sadly for him, it was a terribly difficult decision, places his wife in this home. It turns out that the home that the mother is in, her own mother had been, remember, her own mother was in that home and lived to 101 years old. And there's a passage where the author, I, the author, where the narrator of the story says, I remember my grandmother, and she lived to 101 years old, and she was in that home. And every day, my mother, the Alice character, went five days a week and took such good care of her mother. She, she, she clipped her nails, she washed her, she fed her, she did five days a week. She took care of her own mother much, much greater, seeming love and care than the narrator in the story. So that's, that's very much part of the book. And there's a description of this hope. And it's a pretty scathing description of these for-profit nursing homes. Um, you know, maybe one could say like, it's, it's harsher than necessary, but the, the, the impression is a very bad impression that you have from this description. And eventually, and very sad, and the narrator of the story the, the daughter, the author, who does not have a close relationship with her mother, who never really had, um, is starting to feel guilty. And then, and at, by the end of the story, Alice, Alice passes away. And at the end, the final section of the book is called, do you remember this? It has this funny name, Euroneuro, which turns out is the name of the European, neuro, when a, a European neurology conference that Alice's, the slides of Alice's from Alice's brain, because her daughter, the one thing her daughter was wanted to do was to give her mother's brain to science so that in the hopes that there can be some more research done on this disease, which is a form of dementia, which is seen, it turns out is the same form of dementia that the author, Julia Otsuka's mother had suffered for from years and died of as well. It's called FTD, frontotemporal dementia subtype Pick's disease. And that's what Alice has. And then so at the end of the book, in this, in this, you know, I mean it's a sad ending. It's um, it starts out, the book starts out so funny and so lively, and so you know, the descriptions of the pool and the swimmers in the pool, until this crack appears in the pool. And then it becomes a study of a woman and her dementia, and but and the last bits are the relationship, the difficult relationship between the daughter, the narrator of the story and her mother and in the at, towards the end of the book the author writes on page, on page 
145 towards the end, she says, never, never once, and this is the, where the daughter is now going through the guilt of a daughter who realizes or at least feels guilty for not having been closer enough to her mother. She says, five days a week for four years, your mother visited her own mother at the very same home. She flossed her teeth, she brushed her hair, she clipped her nails, she rubbed aloe vera lotion fortified with vitamin E onto her legs and feet and into the spaces between her toes. She read to her from the obituaries in the Japanese paper, and every Friday, without fail, she brought her her favorite treat from the Japanese bakery. She took such good care of her, one of the aides tells you. We didn't have to do a thing. You never once invited your mother to come visit you in all the years that you were away. You never wrote to her. You never called to wish her a happy birthday. You never took her to Paris or Venice or Rome, all the places she had dreamed of one day seeing. When your father retires, she would say. But then late last year, when he finally did retire, he was too tired. And all the places you yourself have been not to once, but several times for the opening of a night of a theatrical production, for a literary festival, an award ceremony, for your French novel that was produced in, for your second novel that was produced in French which you based on the most painful and difficult years of her life. She, on the other hand, took her then 81-year-old mother on a 10-day foliage tour of New England the year you left for college. She made all the plans and took her mother through three different states as the leaves were beginning to peak. Again, this, you know, so you have this daughter's guilt. When she asked you why you weren't closer, you said you didn't know. You closed the door. You turned your back. You grew quiet and still like an animal. You broke her heart and you wrote. And now, now that you finally come home, it's too late. And um, anyway, the book continues, but here you like you get a feeling of what the of, of what the narrator is is feeling in the second half. So you you have the first half underground, the second half firmly anchored above ground with Alice, who you know, diagnosed with dementia and in her, her, as her waning memories, we get to hear her memories of her heartbreak, of her losing her first, her first baby that was lived only for an hour, of her Japanese ancestors internment. And she briefly mentions, because the mother Alice in the book remembers being interned just as the author's own family was, were interned as well. Her prose is subdued, but it's very powerful at times. As I said, she has this list building. Lists and litanies appear. Um, they're unassuming most of the time. They're, they're kind of quotidian, like daily, until the paragraph comes to an end. This is her writing style. And, and you kind of find yourself stunned by what she has managed to say to you. In the later, in this last section, as I said, we experience the guilt of this adult daughter who is addressed, and it's an interesting voice. So the first part of the book is we, 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 this Greek chorus of the swimmers. And then you have the description of Alice. And then, but then you have this last section, which is you. And who is saying you to the narrator of the story? Who is telling, um, the daughter, Alice's daughter, that you did this and you did that and you didn't do this and you didn't do that. You rarely called. You never had children. You left home early and moved to a faraway city from which you hardly ever returned, unless it's just the daughter is thinking it to herself in her head. You left home early and you, but not I, she says you. And then she says, and you hardly ever returned. And when you did, you went straight to your childhood bedroom. So this is a novel, not only of accumulation of detail, but also repetition, which can seem repetitious, but there's a point to her, rep to her repetitiveness. The scenes loop around in the way that our mind does, really. Like, it's interesting to see it written down because you say, oh, you know, 
looping around and repeating itself. But think of the way you think in your thoughts. Like, don't we go, especially at three in the morning and four in the morning or two, whenever you're not sleeping, and you're thinking, and it's over and over and over again, and it's repetitive, and it goes round, and it's like ridiculous and annoying, but that's what happens. And that's the way she writes here, this looping and looping, or similar to the way swimmers swim laps. Because you, when you do laps in a pool, I mean, it's one of the most repetitive, ridiculous things that you go round and round and round and round over and over and over again. And you do this three times a week or five times a week or however many you think, why are we doing this? But you do it. So life really is, it's not so foreign to real life, this idea of repetition and detail and repetition and lists and any of this litany of things. And that's what she writes about here. So what happens is that when all of this is compounded, these little accretions, these little additions build onto this feeling of loss. And that's really by the end of the book, loss and it being too late. Too lateness is what the daughter has to deal with. When she asked you why you weren't closer, you said you didn't know. That's what, that's what Otsuka writes, speaking directly to the daughters and to the mothers who don't quite understand each other, which is not an uncommon thing in mother-daughter relationships. You closed the door, you turned your back, is the daughter thinking to herself. You were the one who got quiet. You broke her heart and you wrote, and the pool that was so dominant in the first part of the book, the swimmers. So what's the title, the swimmers? I mean, it seems clearly the swimmers are the people who are swimming in the, in the beginning of the book, except that they're not really part of the second part of the book. So maybe by that point, the swimmers are not just the literal swimmers who were the ones we met in the first part of the book when the pool was still functioning, but all of the characters or all of people swimming through life repeating and repeating and going through our daily routines and accumulating the details as the years go on of what becomes our lives. And as I said, the, the, the pool only appears once or twice in the second half. I don't know if any well, those of you who read the book, if you caught it, there is one part where she, where the narrator says, when you drive past the swim club, she remembers being kicked out of the pool by the lifeguard after swimming in that pool for more than 35 years. I couldn't remember any of the rules, she said. So this is Alice's recollection, which is at odds of what happens because the chorus's earlier observation were that, well, they knew why the pool had to close because of this crack and the cracks grew and then they had to close the pool. But Alice was the last person swimming and they let her swim extra because they knew that she didn't remember. And it was a, a last act of kindness bestowed on Alice by her co-swimmers you know swimmers and by the lifeguard and by everybody there in that pool. And it's kind of a dissonance that the novel that has the two halves, you think that they're dissonant because the first part is the pool. And what does that have to do with the Alice in the second? But really they begin to come together and there is a cohesion by the end because the daughter is writing toward an intimacy with her swimmer mother. And it's as if habit is making sense of habit. So it's a, it is definitely a puzzling narrative structure, but you can kind of, it has a kind of poetic sense, maybe as a myth. And it turns out, and I didn't know this, but the underground pool, you could see it as bearing echoes. There was a, or in, in classical Greek mythology, the underworld is called Hades, but there's a river there. There apparently, I forgot this from years of ago learning Greek mythology, Leith, left Leith is the river of forgetfulness in the underworld, the classical Greek underworld of Hades. And so it's almost as if, you know, Alice's forgetting precedes her death. Her daughter amasses all the details of her life that maybe seem beside the point, like she tells us that when she's cleaning out her mother's drawers after her mother goes into the home and they realize her mother will never be coming home again to her house, or after her mother passes away, they're still cleaning out. And if anybody's ever cleaned out a parent's house, you know what a 
but it, a difficult thing it is as a child to see things, whatever the memories arise that these different objects bring as one is doing that. But we realize that it's these little objects and these little details that are precisely the point. They're not beside the point, they're precisely the point. So it's in this time of, you know, the book came out during COVID and they said, a number of readers said, I wonder, and then they asked her in this interview, you know, how do you relate this to the time that we're living in now? And Julie, Julie Otsuka replied, she said, as they said, she didn't mean to write this as a COVID novel, but she said, it's time, it's, it's a time period where we thought, you know, we, life was going along swimmingly the way we always thought it would. I mean, not, you know, not that it, there were not difficulties and things, but we were used to a, a certain way that things went on in our lives. And then COVID came and changed everything. And so it's as if she's, she said, you could, you know, you could read, I didn't write it like that, but I see how you could put that into what I wrote because after all, you know, when this crack appears in the pool and everything falls apart for the swimmers, it's similar to, if you want to make the analogy to our world that was going along in certain ways, whoever thought that we would, you know, be wearing masks and whoever thought that we wouldn't be allowed to see other people and we would be, you know, things that took so for granted, like going to school or going to the grocery store or going to the office, all of a sudden we couldn't do them anymore. And so life changed and she, she writes about this in a different way, of course, because she writes about dementia and about memory loss. But once the memory loss begins, the life of the person suffering from it changes drastically, even if it's slowly, but drastically, and so do the lives of the people around them. And so this is a very interesting, a small book, won't take you very long to read, by an author who seems to be quite a master of a vocabulary of style, who is who who is in love with detail who's used to as she said working with the with the other kinds of arts like with painting and with sculpture but then has come to work with words and treats them in the in, in a similar fashion building layer upon layer in her style who is also very interested in her own past i mean her first two novels were about her the, the stories of her Japanese American family, her, her parents and her grandparents and her aunts and uncles and what they went through. And the other, and, and even further than that, the first Japanese, those brides who came across um, to the to America at the turn of the 20th century. But she's an author who is not so much as she says interested in plot, rather interested in description and in sharing with her with her readers a certain vision and a certain point of view and in this case um it seems to be the most personal story yet because she did say and i thought this was very interesting because people in all these other you know reviews and comments said i wonder how much of any of or any of this is autobiographical and you know why do you necessarily think that authors have always written stories about characters that have nothing to do with themselves but there was just something about this that felt a little bit autobiographical and it turns out that yes that her mother was suffering from this same kind of dementia and she says and this is this is very interesting she said that um she said you know we didn't know what my we didn't know that anything was happening to my mother and it turns out the kind of dementia that that she had which seems which is the kind of the dementia that the character alice in the book has um is one that can start early can start starts very often in in the 50s 50s and 60s and she said but at the beginning and this is julio suka speaking she says sometimes it's the hardest for the people closest to the person who's suffering from dementia to see what is actually happening there's a lot of denial going on probably in the earlier years, but she said, I actually remember when the first time I realized that something was slightly off with my mother was when I went home for Christmas and my mother, who was very, very good always with her hands, we were baking together and her little crescent shaped cookies that she always used to bake, they were not perfectly shaped. And that something didn't look right because up till then, 
My mother's cookies had always been perfect, and these were not neat, which is something that she never would have done before. So after looking back, I realized that that was a very clear visual representation that something was not right. But we didn't really question when she repeated herself early on. It just seemed like one of her quirks, or maybe something that was she was doing intentionally. And she said, you know, I wish we had realized earlier on that the way she was behaving, that it was different, and it wasn't anything she had real control over. But it took us, the family members, a long time before we even thought to bring her to a neurologist to get a diagnosis. It took many years. And so the interviewer says to her, but what, 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 what difference would it have made if you would have known or not? And she said something very interesting, which I think people, others can relate to. She said, yeah, I know, it's not, wouldn't have been reversible. It's not like there would have been any treatment that would have made the outcome any different. But the only, the one thing I think is that could have been different is that we, either as her family, might have had a little bit more compassion for her from early on. And I think if you've ever, you know, lived through anything similar, you'll know that you think, so there were personality changes, which you, you know, you, you blame on the person. Like, why are they so nasty? Why are they so mean? Why are they so difficult? Why are they so forgetting everything? But if you know that it's a disease, then you can say, ah, it's not, the, it's not them. It's the disease that's doing it. And this is what Julia Otsuka says. We would have, and maybe she herself, you know, said, I, I might have been kinder. I, I, I wouldn't have been, you know, so indifferent, so, 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 Maybe we would have been closer as a mother-daughter. And so the interviewer says to her, yeah, that's a big difference. She says, Otsuka says, it's a huge difference. It's very difficult to live with somebody whose personality is changing. And you know, to a certain point, they're not the person you remember, but they can't help it. But of course, if you don't realize that, you as the daughter, you as the you know, family member, then you blame the person. And, and then she said that when my, her own mother, she said when her, her own mother's memory was starting to go, um, her memories of what happened to her as a child still stayed. They stayed. Those memories were very strong. And she puts that into the Alice character, the memories of what it was like those days when she had to, you know, when the, when the Second World War broke out and her mother was a young child. And that's when the, the children all had to leave school because they were to those internment camps and Julia Otsuka says I remember my mother telling me that she began she began to tell and she told it over and over a story about her last day at school in the elementary school in Berkeley California which was where Julia Otsuka's mother and family were living the day before they had to leave to go to this camp this internment camp and she and she's told the story over and over and over again but she said, I hadn't heard the story before she started to lose her, her memory. And what was the story? The story was that Otsuka's mother said that her teacher asked her to stand up in front of the class and then told everybody in the elementary school class that Haruko, which was her mother's Japanese name, um, her mother's English name, by the way, the author's mother's English name was Alice, just like in the character in the book, that Haruko would be leaving the next day and would everybody in the class, all the other students, I don't know how old they were, 10 years old, please tell her goodbye. So she remembered the entire class said goodbye to her, which I think the teacher meant as an act of kindness, but her mother remembered feeling very singled out and very ashamed and very embarrassed. Because you can imagine 10 year old, how old she was standing up in front of the class having to say that she's leaving. And she doesn't know why she's leaving. And they're going to camp. And Julia Otsuka said, you know, when my mother always talked about the camp, I, the only thing I could relate was summer camp to me um, as a kid. And my mother didn't tell me those stories when I was very young. It was only later and only when her mother started to lose her memories that she herself started to tell Julie Otsuka about the story. And her grandfather was arrested by the FBI. I mean, these were all true stories. So these things come out. So there is quite a bit of autobiography. For the first time, she really puts her own self into the book. Um, for those of you who haven't read it, and if you can eventually get it, I think you'll enjoy it. It's a quick read by a very talented, um, by a very talented author. And if you if you're interested, there the library has two her two other her first two novels. 
from 2002 and 2011, when the Buddha in the attic and when the and when the emperor was divine, which are also made very interesting reads in this genre, I guess you could say, of Japanese-American literature. So I don't know if you have to wait another 10 years till she writes her next book, but um, in any case, any questions? Anything, and those of you who read it, yeah. Uh, I have two comments. One, there's an expression for somebody who's using your memory or is confused called at sea. At sea. At sea. <laughs> yeah. So, or in the swimming pool? Or in exactly. the swimming pool. So when I exactly. I saw it as an analogy to <gasps> lost in the ocean, lost together. Like that's <gasps> how I saw the connection between the first part and the second part. <gasps> and the okay. other thing, uh, I somehow thought that the chorus, the we, of the first part was the one who was, the, who was talking and saying you in the second part. Yeah. I, uh -huh. I, I, I don't know. It's just. My, my I, I thought it was one of the other cool people who came and was talking to the daughter somehow. That's how, because to me, the voice from the pool and the voice talking to the daughter sound alike. They do, they do, yeah, they do sound alike, but I wonder if it's like, because it's the same author writing the book, I don't know. I don't know. Yeah, I don't know. That, yeah, that's interesting, because, yeah, because you wonder, who's the we, like, and who's the you? I mean, the we is the pool people. There right. is Greek chorus of the we, the we, the we. Um, and then the you is, it, yeah, either, either the unnamed narrative voice or the daughter herself her. in her head saying, you should have done this, and you could have done that, and you did this. But yeah, but it reverts to the single. It goes, yeah, it goes from this Greek chorus of the plural which is kind of I'm thinking like, you know, because the Greek choruses were in love with these Greek tragedies, right? So there's the tragedy was going to be, I mean, it looks like the beginning of the tragedy is the crack appears in the pool and the pool is going to close. And that's a big tragedy for, for the swimmers. But the real tragedy is the crack in Alice's mind, right? And, and whatever is lesions on her brain and, and how she's, and this sadness of descent into dementia. And the guilt of, which is not that much part of the book, but it's a pretty major factor, it seems. Yeah. I, when I started reading about the crack, I thought not just about it, but in many, many cases, people have sometimes collected, sometimes individual, like a war, for example. People have their lives and everything is okay, everything is And then suddenly their whole world changes. Like just cranking up. Yeah. People had a life and then, and then everything. Change, they had to run away, oh, yeah. but we all know. So I thought it was more general, not just like a, a metaphor for the for, for for what can happen in life, for that you're going exactly. along. And sometimes and it's an individual, yeah, yeah, you know, yeah, something like that. Yeah, and, true. that's interesting. Yes, and, yeah. and then it linked the first, the first and the second part. Like, the yeah. mother, everything was fine, and she actually the details how she had her house perfect and everything was perfect, and then suddenly. So I thought this was that's really and, and, yeah, and so also like so then maybe this idea of the that Alice was okay. I mean, the dementia was progressing anyway. So while she was still able to go swimming, it was not so bad because she could do that. She'd been swimming for thirty-five years in that pool. She was a retired lab technician, so she, she knew how to do that, and she knew how to swim. So she didn't forget how to swim. But when that crack in the pool, like that, sh that shattered everybody's world. Not only literally the pool. But did it bring on her dementia even more? I mean, but that forced everything out into the open, you know, that that was the pivotal moment and that kind of, yeah, yeah. But she was already forgetting her hat. Her yes, her bathing hat, hat, which was right. These and they things. allowed it. Yeah. With, they, they, with they, all those they, rules. That, with all the rules, yeah. there was that kindness that they let Alice get away with things because they, yeah. And oh, she said also that that, you know, because sometimes you could think like, almost read like short stories. So she did say that that section, this uh, Deo, Deo Perditi, she, she wrote it before as a short story. She was asked to write, I should have mentioned this, asked to write a short story for some competition or magazine or something, and she wrote it, and that was that's what she wrote. And then when she got this idea, maybe it was after her mother, you know, her mother's dementia and her mother passed away, that she expanded and included that chapter, but filled it out, writing the before and the after parts of it. But that was the beginning of the book um, as a short story, that, that itself, the, the lost 
the day was lost instead of the day was seized. So yeah, so I guess that I mean that's just a testament that you could read it however you know you want, and it's not it's not so clear cut who's the you and who's the voice and the 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 we of the the first part versus the I of the second part. And maybe the list making has to do with how memory is created or or peeled back in layers. Like you can remember details of things, but then not the particular context, or how yeah. she mis misremembers the last day of the pool. Yes. How memories are created right. by right. via lists, yeah, and spirals. Yeah, 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 and it's and it yeah, and that's her. And, and she said, and she used that style. It's not just in this book, apparently. So you know, because we link, you link it to memory, but in her in her previous book, she had the same style of the we and the lists. So it seems to be one of her trademarks of the way she writes is that she she builds up these details and and uh, and makes the list even when it's not only my dragon she's always writing about could be memories because the, the previous two books were also memories of time periods past yeah that's an interesting yeah yeah but it works I mean unless you don't like that voice of the list but that's that's her seems to be her trademark style by now Any other questions, comments? Have a good month, everybody. <laughs> We're back in December. December. Not, I know you're probably going to be here. You'll be in Vienna. Back in April. 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 April